irrational call. The irrational call. James 1, 1 to 4. This message is about the irrational call of James that he gives us in this passage. Will we heed the irrational call? Will we heed that irrational call of James? What is that irrational call? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. James gives us something, he makes an irrational statement, and he calls us to do something that appears to be irrational. To count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We're to find joy when we're going through trials and problems. Now when you first hear that and logically think about that, it doesn't seem to make sense. That's why we call it the irrational call. James' irrational call to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. To find joy in the midst of many trials and many problems. The irrational call of James. Will you heed the irrational call of James? James chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. About James the Epistle. The Epistle of James deals with the ethics of Christianity, and the practical application of Christianity. James is about the necessity of a living faith and its outworking in a righteous life. Though as James deals with the practical, he does not ever get away from the subject of faith. Faith is ever woven all throughout this epistle. James writes about a living faith. James writes about a vibrant faith. James writes about a faith which produces works. This kind of faith will change lives. This kind of faith will change attitudes. This kind of faith will change conduct and improve character. James wrote this epistle to Jewish Christians, who in addition to many of them being scattered abroad, were also poor and oppressed. Being Jews, they would often be rejected by Gentiles. Being Christian Jews, they would also be rejected by their own countrymen. This epistle indicates that most of these believers were poor and some are being oppressed by the rich. We see that in James chapter 2. James is a very down-to-earth letter. It is the most practical epistle in the New Testament. This letter is filled with advice about facing trials, coping with poverty, desires to be rich, controlling the tongue, making plans for the future, and so on. But first and foremost, Christianity is about a relationship. Rightly relating to God through Christ is the beginning and end of a Christian's life. This epistle is more than a checklist of do's and don'ts. It is about the practical application of the Christian life. Throughout this letter, when James wants to make a practical application, he usually appeals to some attribute or quality of God. Therefore, demonstrated the more we become like Christ in our Christian walk, the more the day-to-day -day practical application of his truth we will see. This epistle is likely the first book of the New Testament that was written. And what does the Holy Spirit lead James to pen as some of the first words of the New Testament? The first things the Holy Spirit thought was, this is the most important thing 
I need to communicate to these new believers in Christ some of the first words ever penned to the New Testament to Christians were these, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The first thing the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate to Christians is that we would have trials. And not just an occasional trial, we would have many trials. And that we should find joy in the midst of these trials. So about James the man. James, the half-brother of Jesus, a son of Mary and Joseph. He is the James that wrote this epistle. His name is mentioned in the list of Jesus' brethren in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. In the beginning, Jesus' brethren did not believe in him at all, but the time would come when James would head the church in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, the appearance of Christ specially to James. James, in great humility, simply introduces himself in James 1, verse 1, as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He was highly respected. History also tells us he was a very humble man. History gives us several accounts of an interesting nickname that he had, and that interesting nickname was Camel Knees, for his knees were callous with a thick layer of callous skin because he spent so much time in prayer. The Diaspora James chapter 1 verse 1 states that this epistle was addressed to the believers who had been scattered by persecution. The diaspora, the persecution. These would have been Jewish Christians who had been driven out of Jerusalem as a result of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7-8 and the persecution led by Saul of Tarsus. So what's the purpose of the epistle? James wrote this book to explain the purpose of trials and temptations to explain to a people who have been rooted in ritualism the meaning of genuine faith that changes lives, genuine faith that works. James wrote this epistle to warn them of carnality and worldliness, using practical applications. It was written to help us understand and attain spiritual maturity, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James 1.4 James desired us to become spiritually mature men and women, Christians of character, Christians of integrity, with no spiritual weak spots. James wanted all of us to be well-rounded spiritually and grounded in Christ. And that well-rounded spirituality grounded in Christ would demonstrate itself in works, in our outward behavior. So this epistle suggests to us people were having problems in their personal lives and in the church. They were going through great difficulty and trials, they were facing temptations to sin all around them. They were hearers, but not necessarily doers of the word. Some were catering to the rich. Others were being oppressed by the rich. Some were competing for positions in the church. Improper use of the tongue was a definite problem with them. Some were straying from the faith, wavering in their belief. Sounds kind of like just like today. Those same problems are still going on with Christians today. All those same problems still going on within the church today. Not much has changed since the writing of the epistle James. Now remember, this epistle was the first letter the Holy Spirit had a man pen and was sent to the church. So this epistle is the first thing the Holy Spirit thought was the most important truth to demonstrate and to disseminate to the early church. Now there was a common cause to their problems. All these problems we just went over, there was a common cause a common root cause to these problems. 
James was not addressing an array of unrelated problems. All these problems had a common root cause, and that was spiritual immaturity. Now, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs among Christians today and was one of the greatest needs among the first century Christians as well. Mature Christians are happy Christians, despite the trials they face. Mature Christians are useful Christians, overcoming the temptations that cross their path. Mature Christians are Christians who help encourage others and build up their local churches. Faith. James approaches faith subjectively in this epistle in the sense of trust or confidence in the Lord. The epistle of James enlarges our practical understanding of faith. James begins right off the bat with a series of practical admonitions about faith and continues non-stop till the end of this epistle. What is the theme of James? One thing is very clear. The dominant theme of the book of James is faith that is real works practically in one's life, and that true faith is a faith that works. James shows us how to have a living faith, a breathing faith, and a productive faith in a fallen world. In this short book alone, there are 54 imperatives. James is a do-this, do-that kind of book, but that's not all it is. But if we take it to heart and implement the teaching of the book of James into our life, it will dynamically affect our lives on every level. James 1.1 James a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, James the man. James was none other than a blood brother, a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 13.55, Mark 6.3 At first, James did not believe in Jesus as a Savior. However, during the forty-day period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, James believed on him for his salvation. James is mentioned as being in the upper room in Jerusalem, praying with Mary his mother and the rest of the disciples in Acts 1.13. He was presumably present when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church. James was a late bloomer, but he ended up flowering pretty well. James made the most of his life after his salvation and his service for the Lord. If we get saved a little later in life, like James, need to seek to make the most of the rest of our life for Christ. Don't waste a moment. James knew Christ as only few could. Think about this. He knew Christ as only few on earth could ever have known him. For years, James ate at the same table with Jesus. For years, James shared the same house, played in the same places, used the same toys, perhaps. He shared with Jesus the joys and the sorrows of family life. Special joyish family occasions they celebrated together as brothers. Sad, mournful occasions they mourned together as brothers. Possibly even including the death of Joseph. They possibly mourned the, the death of their earthly father together as brothers. So James knew Jesus in a unique way more than anybody else could have known him, and he watched the development of his amazing older brother as he grew up. When James truly came to know Christ, his boyhood privilege was though it was not wasted. He became known as James the Just, a man known for his immense piety. The historian Eusebius recorded that 
James used to enter alone in the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people, so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. Kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people, so from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just. Now, James' self-perception. James had so much going for him, but he just viewed himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James had immense ground on which to pull rank. He could have opened his letter with James the Just, son of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and brother of the Messiah. But he did not even allude to this status, instead being content with just being known as a servant. Philippians 2, 5-8 Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. James the Just was also James the Humble, and this fact made him eminently qualified to write a book of the Bible. James' Pastoral Focus Notice humble James writes pastorally to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. A Jews' scattering known as the Diaspora began in 722 BC when the Assyrians deported the ten northern tribes, and later the southern kingdom also suffered the same fate when conquered by Babylon in 586 BC, and many were taken captive. Because of this, the Jews at this time were scattered all around the Middle East, Asia Minor, and parts of Europe. Some of the major world cities had large populations of expatriate Jews. Also, when Jewish Christians were first persecuted in Jerusalem, they fled to these Jewish communities around the Mediterranean. We see that in Acts chapter 11. Tragically, though, these Jewish Christians were not taken in by these expatriate Jewish kinsmen. Instead, they were rejected and persecuted by them. So they fled persecution to what they thought would be a safe haven, safe harbor, and persecution just continued there. James 1-2 My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. James' irrational call. Diverse temptations here means various trials, various problems. Notice that James assumes we will all experience trials. He doesn't say if, but when. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. This is because Christians must expect trials. So said Jesus in John 16:33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul also said as much in Acts 14:22, We are told the nature of these trials in James 1:2 are various. Diverse, various. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations or various trials, various problems. Some trials come simply because we are human. Sickness, accidents, disappointments, death. Other trials come because we are Christians. 1 Peter 4.12, 2 Timothy 3.12. Because Satan fights against us and the world opposes us, so we can expect trials. The trials that afflict you 
the sorrows you endure, what are they but the testing that makes your calling sure? God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, C.S. Lewis. Over 20 years ago, I experienced a storm of various trials, various testing. And I have to admit that this, this verse, this irrational call, proved true to me. To count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. I was going through a period of time in my life that I wouldn't wish on anyone. It was extreme emotional. It was hard to go through. It was a difficult time. Uh, probably the most difficult thing I've ever had to go through in my entire life. And this verse proved true. In the midst of all these problems, these revelations, it seemed like every few days I was getting hit with more bad news. And it was, I was in a situation where I wasn't near family, uh, basically on my own going through all this, living by myself. And just bad news after bad news, very deep, depressing trial of life. But I found joy in the midst of that trial. I didn't realize at the time I was living out this verse, but it was happening. I would get home from work, open up my Bible, 5.30, 6 o'clock, open up my Bible. And before I knew it, it was 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I've been reading my Bible for 6, 7, 8 hours straight, praying, communing with God. And I, my heart, I would be overflowed, overfilled with joy. I would just have such peace and such joy overflowing me in the midst of this dire and dark time in my life. And I'll never forget that. And I found joy. The Lord gave me joy, gave me peace in the midst of that trial. Now, I didn't, I, well, I still wasn't enjoying the trial. I didn't like everything I was going through. If it could have been the exact opposite, I, I would have wanted it to be the exact opposite. But God gave me joy in the midst of that trial. He filled me with his joy, his peace. Read his word, pray, and he filled me with his joy and his peace. So this this verse is true. This principle is true. We can count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. So what is a Christian's response to be to trials? This is the irrational call of James. Count it all joy. That's to be our response to trials, to count it all joy. This is the irrational call of James. What does James command to count it all joy when we are hit with trials and troubles really mean? First, let's clarify what it does not mean. James does not mean that we are to have an all-encompassing, joyful, emotional state even during severe trials and situations. We're not to be, it's not a command to be super happy even when we're going through uh, one of the most tragic times in our life. He's not, that's not what this is saying. He is not demanding that we enjoy our trials. James knows all too well, as did the writer of Hebrews, that no chastening of the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Hebrews 12, 11. So what James is doing here is commending the conscience embrace of a Christian understanding of life, which brings joy in the trials. Count it all joy means here to make a deliberate and careful decision to experience joy even in times of trouble. Is this even possible? Well, according to Scripture, it is. 
2 Corinthians 7.4 Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. In 2 Corinthians 7.4 They were counting it all joy in the various trials or the diverse temptations they were going through. Acts 5.40-41 And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the present of the council, and notice this, rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were heeding their rational call of James, they were counting it all joy and diverse temptations. Acts 16.25 And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed, and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them at midnight falsely rested in prison, sang praises unto God. They were counting it all joy in diverse temptations or the various trials they were at. They were counting it all joy. As I was studying for this, I ran across a very good illustration. Many years ago, a pastor underwent the worst year of his life. His wife had undergone five surgeries plus chemotherapy and radiation. Fighting a hopeless battle, several of his staff members had quit. Large problems loomed in the church. Large problems loomed in his family. Large problems loomed everywhere he looked. And discouragement was attacking him from all directions. And this is what he wrote about this time. The greatest discovery that I've made in the midst of all the difficulties is that I can have joy when I can't feel like it. He put it in artesian joy. When he had every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. In spite of everything, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing could separate me from him. It was not happiness, gush, or jolliness, but a constant flow of the Spirit through me. At no time did he give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted it on my timetable, but that he was in charge and would give me and my family enough courage for each day. Grace. Joy is always the result of that. This pastor was heeding the irrational call of James. James is telling us with this command, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations to thoughtfully find joy in our own diaspora experiences. When we feel alienated, like these Christians Jews did that James was addressing, when we feel unwanted, like they did, to find joy even in great difficulty and great tragedy as these Christians, Jews, did as well. Such joy-finding may seem irrational, but Christ is perfectly rational and perfectly able to flow His joy straight through us just as we need it most. James is not saying the trials are good in themselves, but there is joy that is independent of circumstances, which may be found in remembering God's sovereignty and God's purposes. James 1, 3-4 Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now let's look at the rationale for the irrational call of James. Trying. This word has the idea of a precious metal that is heated in a furnace to refine its impurities. God has a good purpose for the trying of our faith, to refine our faith to make our faith stronger, to test our faith, to prove our faith to us that our faith is what it needs to be, the trying of your faith, knowing this, that the trying of your faith 
work with patience. God has a goal in mind. You can count on that. James, speaking here about the attitude of your heart towards your trouble, how are you reacting to it? We should have an attitude of faith and trust in God in the trial. Trials are meaningless, suffering is senseless, and testing is irrational unless there is some good purpose for them. God says there is a reason for them, and it is a good reason. Faith tested produces patience. Romans 5, 3-4 And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. In the Bible, patience is not a passive acceptance of circumstances. The Greek word denotes the ability to exhibit steadfastness and consistency in the face of the most formidable difficulty. It is a courageous perseverance in face of suffering. It is the continuing on even when it is rough, despite the circumstances. The word perfect in James 1.4 means completeness, wholeness, maturity. In the New Testament, it is used of those who have attained a spiritual manhood in Christ and who have reached full maturity and understanding in spiritual matters. Such maturity comes only when patience has had time to work. Consider, for example, an endurance runner in his training. To be a mature runner requires letting patience do its work. If we wish to run the race well, spiritually speaking, we need to develop patience or develop endurance, which comes only through a form of spiritual resistance training. That is, trials in which our faith is put to the test, stretched, enlarged as a result of the trials. Adversity is like a stress test, pushing us up and to beyond our limits so that we will recognize our dependence upon God and call on Him for help in the time of trouble. Adversity is designed to produce endurance in our lives, and this endurance perfects us so that we will become complete and lacking nothing. James forces us to look at ourselves in an entirely different light. So many people think of themselves as basically okay, except for their sin, they admit they need Jesus to forgive their sins, but they feel that the rest of their life does not necessarily need any radical change. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm a decent guy. I'm, I'm pretty good. When we think that we are sufficient in and of ourselves, we deceive ourselves. God brings adversity into our lives to show us our deficiencies. And as we see these deficiencies, we realize that we must cry out to God to supply what we lack. The entire Christian life is a process of recognizing our deficiencies and seeking His grace to supply our needs. He has amply provided for every deficiency. To resist and detest adversity is to resist the sanctification and perfecting work of God in our lives. But to rejoice or have joy in the midst of trials is to embrace His perfecting work in us. So what is the rationale for this irrational call of James? The rationale for joy comes from knowing that the various trials we face have spiritual value. James says there is a two-step process through which our trials evaluate us. First step is to understand that the testing of our faith develops perseverance or staying power, verse 3. Another commentator call it heroic endurance. Another one, fortitude. So how does this work? We develop this perseverance or fortitude in our life by repeatedly being tested and prevailing. 
There is no way anyone can develop this kind of staying power of toughness without testing. The spiritual endurance, toughness, or staying power of the Apostle Paul or William Carey did not come overnight, and it did not come without trials, Romans 5.3. We can see the same principle in nature. If we were to free a butterfly from its cocoon and eliminate its struggle to free itself, you would destroy its life. It would never develop the strength it needed to soar in its life as it should. And God wants us to soar as he designed us to. So he develops our spiritual strength through trials. God wants us to soar. So that is why we face trials. He wants to develop our spiritual maturity so we can soar in our life. When fortitude is lacking in one of God's children, he has a time-tested remedy, the trying of your faith. Now, with this in mind, James' irrational call, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, makes perfect sense and is indication of God working in our life to perfect us to his image. The rationale becomes even clearer when we observe the second step. Perseverance produces maturity. Spiritual perseverance or toughness produces a dynamic maturity. The perfection that James is speaking of is, is more than just a maturing character. It is also a rounding out as more and more parts of our righteous character are added in. This maturity is a dynamic state in which a thousand parts of us are honed, shaped, tempered, and brought together, making a dynamic wholeness. It is commonly taught that trials bring maturity, but that is not necessarily so. Rather, fortitude and perseverance in times of testing produces maturity. Our reactions to trials, how we navigate them, produces spiritual maturity. As we endure trials of economic stress, disappointments, criticisms, domestic pressures and stress, persecution of our faith, illness, etc. Many different parts of us are being touched with grace and honed into his image. To illustrate this, someone once wrote about how a pearl is made. Life on earth would not be worth much if every source of irritation were removed. Yet most of us rebel against the things that irritate us and count as heavy loss what ought to be rich gain. We are told that the oyster is wiser, that when an irritating object like a bit of sand gets under the mantle of his shell, he simply covers it with the most precious part of his being and makes it a pearl. The irritation that is causing it is stopped by encrusting it with this pearly formation. A true pearl is therefore simply a victory over irritation. Every irritation that gets into our lives today is an opportunity for pearl culture. The more irritations the devil flings at us, the more pearls we may have. We need only to welcome them and cover them completely with love, that most precious part of us, and the irritation will be smothered out as the pearl comes into being. What a store of pearls we may have, if we will. So in conclusion, our Savior has experienced great trials. He experienced them in his human body. He understands our frailties. He set the example for us how to endure the trying of our faith. Christ endured his trials with joy in his mind. Just as James commands us to consider our trials with joy, so too did Christ. Joy coexists with suffering where there are higher and better prospects in view. For us, the great motivation to endure with joy is to look to the end of the process in which God is at work. Jesus suffered with joy in his mind as he too looked toward the end of the process 
in which God was at work, with us on his mind. Hebrews 12.2 Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy that was set before Jesus, that joy that was in his mind that helped him endure the cross was us, our eventual salvation, the possible salvation of the world. We were the joy that was set before him, and that is why he endured the trying of his faith. He endured the cross with us on his mind. Well, we need to flip that around. The joy that should be on our mind when we're going through trials and temptations and problems is Jesus. He should be what we were thinking about, and we should be able to get through these trials and problems with him on our mind, for him, thinking of the joy that is waiting for us someday in heaven because of him. So we need to flip that narrative around. The joy that was on Jesus' mind was us, but the joy that can be on our mind is him. Paul told Timothy the truth. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Life will always be full of testing for the true Christian. Trials are not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure, but are opportunities to mature in spirit and in character. James commands the irrational, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. But it does not seem irrational once we learn the reasoning behind it. Testing brings spiritual toughness. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. James 1.3 Spiritual toughness brings dynamic maturity. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James 1.4 James calls for a decisive act to consider our troubles opportunities for joy and endurance. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, Watch his methods, watch his way, how he ruthlessly perfects, who he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Spiritual maturity is not a goal that will ever be entirely achieved in this life because we shall never be free of self and pride until Christ comes and sin is no more. Nonetheless, this is God's purpose, and the hope of our glorious future provides us with the joy and encouragement we need to progress towards it through trials and heed the irrational call of James to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Will you heed the call?